Hi, and welcome to a special episode of the Eclectic Readers Book Club, where we are recording live from Book Riot Live, and we are joined by Ken Liu, author of the epic fantasy, The Grace of Kings. I'm Tara. And I'm Meredith. Hey, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Tara and Meredith, for having me here. So, um... We know a little bit about you, but our listeners may not. Um, so if you could just tell our listeners just a short biography, I guess, of what you've done. Um, sure. So I am an author as well as a translator. Uh, and I also work as a programmer and a lawyer. Uh, I... <laughs> I've had um, most most of my career was spent as a short story writer, uh, and I published over 130 short stories, uh, novellas, novelettes. Uh, but it's only in the last few years that I've turned to writing novels, and so I have two novels out in a silk punk epic fantasy series called The Dandelion Dynasty, and the two books are The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms. And um, I also have a collection of uh, some of my favorite short stories uh, in a collection called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. I'm only about halfway through The Paper Menagerie, but I do love, love it. Um, so let, let's just ask like a, a warm-up question, an easy, an easy pitch hit, essentially. Um, what has been your favorite book to read not that you wrote, that doesn't count, uh, 2016. Um, okay, so this will be a weird choice because it's not a new book. It's actually a very old book. Uh, it's uh, called Hamlet in the Holodeck by Janet Murray. Uh, Janet Murray is uh, a pioneer, really, in the field of cyber narratives, uh, meaning thinking through what it means to tell stories in the digital medium. Uh, and Hamlet in the Holodeck is a book uh, that she wrote when she was at MIT. And uh, it sets out her theory about the ways in which uh, hypertext uh, games uh, and virtual reality and, and uh, interactivity and all of these other forms of digital uh, media are really, in some ways, one unified medium, a new medium that's being invented um, as we as we develop the technology and learn how to work with it uh, as a way to tell stories. And I found it utterly fascinating and, and completely uh, thought-provoking. So uh, if you're at all interested in things like virtual reality and hypertext and digital storytelling and games and any of that, uh, you should definitely get this book and you should follow uh, Professor Janet Murray um, and uh, because she keeps a blog called Inventing the Medium. Uh, where she thinks through these questions uh, with the latest advances in technology. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, I'm a huge geek. I'm actually in software as well. Um, I don't code. And I, well, I code, but not well. Um, <laughs> um, so, And I know we have a lot of geeky listeners, so I'm sure a lot of people are going to be super interested in that. Um, you mentioned you were a tr you're a translator as well as an author. Um, the three-body problem is... Uh, probably the thing that sort of skyrocketed you into uh, an author career? Would you say that's true? Oh, no. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so it, it's kind of funny how I've gotten to know a lot of readers through the translation work. Uh, uh, but I mean, you know, um, I had a pretty successful short story career before that, and most of the awards I've won were won uh, before I did any kind of translation. In fact, uh, 
translation happened largely as a pure accident. Uh, for most of my career, I had zero interest in translations. Uh, so I spent you know over a decade writing and publishing short stories, um, and then I turned to writing novels. Um, and somewhere along the way, one of my friends in China, Chen Xiufen, uh, came to me and uh, said, "You know, I've had." My story, one of my stories, translated professionally into English. Would you mind taking a look at it and see what you think of the translation? So I started looking at it, and and there were issues with the translation in terms of not preserving his voice. Uh, you know, as a as an author, I think voice super important. Um, and uh, if you're if if you're story in literary translation, I think it's critical to preserve the author's voice. In translation, and unfortunately, that translation did not do it. So I started marking it up and making fixes.、Uh, and then after a while, I said, "You know what?、Uh, let me just do this from scratch because this is so hard.、Uh, fixing this is is harder than just doing it from scratch." So I did my translation,、um, uh, my first translation、uh, that way. Largely, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I, <laughs> I, I, I've taken no translation courses.、Uh, I, I've been reading Chinese、uh, science fiction for for years, of course, but、uh, I, I certainly knew nothing about translation theory or translation practice. I was just going by gut and trying to do a better job than the version that I was given,、um, and that translation ended up actually doing pretty well. It. Was sold to Clark's World as one of the, I believe, the first translation the magazine ever bought,、um, and it ended up winning an award、uh, that year. So I was like, "Hey, this is kind of cool."、Um, there's a lot of exciting science fiction coming out of China, and、uh, I love to share them with my fellow Anglophone readers.、Uh, so I started doing some translation along with my short story、um, uh, writing, and then I started winning all these awards for. Short story writing,、uh, and I thought you know the translation would just be forgotten because I I get too busy to do any of it, and I in fact started working on my novel.、Uh, that was when you know、uh, the company that bought up the foreign rights to the Three Body Problem came to me.、Um, uh, I, I always get their name wrong, so let me try it again. It's、uh, it's China Education Educational Publications Import Export Company. Uh, or or C E P I E C,、um, and they came to me and said, you know, we have the foreign rights to the Three Body series. Would you like to be the translator? And I was, you know, jumped at the chance because I love those books and I think they're amazing. And to have a chance to help introduce them to fellow Anglophone readers is, you know, something I always wanted to do. So that's how that happened.、Uh, but no, I mean, I, I think nobody really expected Three Body to take off the way it. Did、uh, I mean I sort of had faith in it, but I think everybody was cautious because translations generally don't do well, and the translated science fiction from China that had never we have no track record of such a thing. You know who who knows what would happen.、Uh, we're very glad that it did take off、uh, the way it did. So that's pretty cool. Fantastic! You just answered three questions <laughs> in pretty much one big go.、Um, so、uh, let's ask a quick transitional question.、Um, In comparison to translating an author's work, what's the hardest thing about translating versus the hardest thing about writing your own original work? So、um, translation, you know, in my conception, I, I I borrow Bill Weaver's metaphor for this. Translation is really a performance art. So the difference between translation and writing original fiction really is the difference between.、Uh, Working as a concert pianist versus composing piano music,、uh, they're they're very different practices.、Uh, 
uh, and very different forms of art um, and require different skills. Um, in translation, I think the hardest thing uh, that I've had to deal with is this sense of obligation and responsibility. Uh, because um, in a lot of ways, uh, when I am performing uh, someone else's text, what I have to contend with is this feeling that whatever happens, um, if I don't do it in a way that works out well, the audience will blame it on the author. Uh, and I do not want that to happen. Uh, some other translators put this much more succinctly than I do. And they, they, they describe it as, my job is to, make, is to not make the author look stupid. Um, that, that's, that's how a lot of translators describe their job. And I, I really understand what they mean. Uh, if you do translation yourself, you'll know what that means. Because there's a sense in which... Um, you know, you, you, you can take risks and, and look like a fool when you're doing your own work. But when you're doing something like that with someone else's work in your performance of it, and, and the result is less than ideal, and, and, and the audience now is blaming the author for it, you feel an extra sense of, of, of just unhappiness and, 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 and guilt over that kind of thing. And so... I think different translators deal with it differently. Uh, some translators get over it and just say, you know, look, uh, translation is not about faithfulness because that's not possible. Translation is about performing a piece for the audience and making a new piece of art that works. And so whatever decisions I make are my decisions and I have to live with them. That's the way it is. Um, some other translators uh, tend to go very quote-unquote conservative in terms of trying to not do anything particularly challenging or particularly controversial. They try to stick to the safest choice, if you will, whenever there is a choice. And the idea here is, you know, at least if, if the audience does not react to it the way we would like to, uh, at least we can say, you know, I, I did what most people, most translators would have done. And I, I ended up choosing to do something that's a little bit different. I ended up saying that um, I do want to, uh, you know, preserve the author's intent and try to um, make sure that the author comes across well. But at the same time, I also feel a sense of responsibility both to the target audience, uh, my fellow Anglophone readers, as well as to um, the larger project of, of, of helping them to understand Chinese science fiction through translation. Um, one of the problems with doing a translation like the three-body problem is that you know it is going to end up being overgeneralized as an example. Uh, readers who don't read anything else from Chinese science fiction or really anything from translated from Chinese at all will end up treating this book as definitive. They will generalize from it to say something about Chinese science fiction, about Chinese literature, or about Chinese society all in all. Um, and, you know, obviously I, I, I tried to discourage or explain to readers why they should not do that. And that's not a good idea. You know, just imagine what kind of conclusions you would draw about American society if the only exposure you have of it uh, is one science fiction book. Pick any science fiction book you want. It, it's just not going to work. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I, I can't control how readers will react. So the best thing I can do is to try to do my translation in such a way that it will uh, not lead itself to the sense of this is generic. This is, right. this is something true of all Chinese books. 
Anyway, it was a hard balance to 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 to, to keep. Um, in terms of origin original fiction, I think the hardest part of it uh, is sort of the opposite, which is that. Uh, because you are, in fact, the only one responsible for your mistakes, you feel this limitless sense of freedom,、um, and and I think it's important to keep that.、Uh, I think as you become more established and have more works out there and have builds up a reputation, one of the things that can be a problem is uh, uh, growing more conservative and feeling fearful about. Um, doing something that will "quote unquote" ruin your reputation. You know, you you might feel like I have this reputation as someone who writes a lot of、um, thoughtful, humanistic science fiction. So maybe that's what I should keep on doing. I shouldn't do anything different because I do something different. What if I fail?、Um, then I think it's important to to prevent yourself from doing that.、Uh, if you do that, then you sort of really do lose、uh, the the most important part of of a writer's repertoire: that sense of fearlessness. Um, and so that's why, you know, for my first novel, I didn't do anything sci-fi. I decided to go with an epic fantasy,、uh, something that I'd never written before. I mean,、uh, you know, out of the hundred thirty plus short stories had published, not a single one is epic fantasy.、Uh, and、uh, I decided to to do that for my novel.、Uh, it was a it was an interesting choice. A lot of people were surprised by it,、uh, but I think all in all, it was the right thing to do. And we're very glad you did.、Um, you know, I thought that was a really interesting point you said about the three-body problem ending up being sort of a definitive view of what I think probably a lot of sci-fi readers see as Chinese culture. I mean, I think that works for almost any genre. I mean, imagine if. Any th- the only thing someone read of American society was To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance. What would they, what would they think of us? Sort of a great, great point.、Um, So, last question before I let Meredith get into the nuts and bolts of the Grace of Kings specifically,、um, is we heard before we got here that DMG recently acquired the worldwide film rights、uh, for the Dandelion Dynasty.、Uh, congrats, by the way! Very cool.、Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs>、um, how do you feel about your books being translated to film, and、um, do you think you're going to have any process in the screenplay? Um, so a lot of the details are still to be worked out. I mean, right now,、uh, my understanding is that development、uh, is underway, and I am not involved at all with that part of it. That's pretty common.、Uh, authors、uh, who have their works optioned or、um, otherwise, you know, sold,、uh, don't really have a lot of input into the adaptation process. Generally, I mean, it's a totally different story if you're George R. R. Martin, uh, <laughs> but uh, but generally that is true.、Um, and、uh, you know, I'm super excited. Uh, but and I'm okay with not having a huge amount of input into it because、um, I've had my work translated into other languages before, and I've learned to let go. I think one of the things that authors are most fearful of when they're being translated for the first few times is the sense of loss of control. They feel like、um, you know someone else is is、uh, going to perform my story for an audience that I cannot reach.、Uh, I, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they understand me right. I don't know if they are carrying out my intent correctly. I would like to be able to get inside their brain and, and move their fingers so that they do exactly <laughs> what I want them to do.、Um, and honestly, I, I think the problem is, y- y- as a writer, you have to let go of that、um, that sense that that you can you you want to control、uh, even in a situation in a domain where you have no expertise and no possibility of control whatsoever. I mean, I don't know Russian. There is just no way for me <laughs> to control my Russian translator and how he or she decides to. Render something,、uh, and I have to learn to let go and trust.、Uh, 
um, and, uh, and 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 you you end up realizing it's okay. Uh, the fact that there is a translation out there or an adaptation out there that is not the thing that you wrote is okay. You learn to live with it. You, the world does not end when that happens. You haven't lost your baby. You still have your book. Uh, and uh, it's just that some readers will now understand it through a different way, through a different interpretation than, than, than the one you wrote down. But then again, remember... Uh, you know, when it comes to reading, the text you write is never the text that readers actually read. Um, you know, I write down a text that reflects what I think these things mean and, and what I wanted to say. Uh, but no matter how careful you are as a writer and how meticulous and how, uh, how good you are with language, what you end up with is just words on the page. Readers still have to make sense of it. And every reader comes to a new book with their own baggage and their own interpretive frameworks, their own history, their own context, their own way of approaching texts. And they must, um, uh, they must fill the text with themselves. They must inhabit it before they can extract meaning from it. And because every reader is different, the way every reader reconfigures that text in her own mind before making sense of it is also completely different. And so every act of reading is in fact an act of translation when the reader translates the words that you have written down into uh, a living thing, a living performance for themselves. Uh, and so you can never control, you, authors have never had control over how readers read their works. And, and once you've accepted that, and I have, uh, I don't have a problem with translations. And I'm perfectly okay with um, uh, a visual adaptation going in directions that I never thought of because that's what makes it fun. Great. That is really interesting. It is. Everyone reading has their own translation, so you say. And, I mean, this is my opinion, but I think the words you put down in The Grace of Kings were beautiful. It is definitely an epic fantasy. There is no doubt about it. So what is one of your favorite epic fantasies? Um, so one of my favorite epic fantasies is Black Wolves by Kate Elliott. Um, uh, Black Wolves is one of those massive books. It's bigger than The Grace of Kings. Uh, it's, uh, 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 I have a funny story to tell about Kate Elliott later. But um, Black Wolves is setting this very amazing secondary world, fantasy world, that's inspired by many uh, Earth cultures, but isn't specifically tied to any one of them. And it's very rich and layered and complex and thought through. Uh, what Kate does really well is thinking through the implications of every single piece of her world building. Uh, so it's like, you know, uh, her world is like this massive web where you pull a strand and the whole thing quivers in a way, in, res in response, in a way that makes sense. Uh, she's got the politics and the marriage customs and the military um, tactics and the history and the administrative um, uh, system and the bureaucracy and the legal system uh, and the food and all that worked out so that they all work in concert. Uh, it's an amazing feat. And there, it's, it's, uh, there are so many uh, well-constructed characters, complex characters who have their own separate stories and she weaves all these strands together in a way that just feels amazing. 
uh, amazingly organic. Uh, and so, yes, if you haven't read Black Wolves, I, I and you're an epic fantasy fan, I strongly recommend it. Um, the funny story here is, of course, that you know. Uh, Kate Elliott writes massive books, very, very big books. Uh, and I, before writing The Grace of Kings, was just a writer of short fiction. Uh, I think the longest thing I'd ever written before then was not much more than 20,000 words, if even that. Um, and The Grace of Kings was like, I think, 185,000. And I think uh, when I was writing it, uh, uh, Kate was trying to encourage me, and, and she promised I would get a gold star if I achieved certain work goals. <laughs> And, and so um, I ended up actually uh, achieving, you know, two gold stars with the Wall of Storms because it's even longer as a book. And so Kate gave me the gold stars and my editor, Joe Monti, uh, was very um, concerned about this. And he was like, no, 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 don't encourage him. <laughs> stop, right, stop with the gold stars. <laughs> Oh, man, yes. Well, you should get a lot of gold stars for this book. It, w it was really great. Now, at the very beginning, you dedicate the Grace of Kings to your grandmother, who introduced you to the great heroes of the Han Dynasty. How did those heroes play a role in writing this book? Okay, so here, here's what happened. You know, I grew up in China as a kid, and uh, back then, uh, my elementary school didn't serve lunch. And so the students were expected to go home every day for lunch and then come back for the afternoon session. And so um, back then, uh, this was before China became, uh, had all the economic reforms. I mean, it was sort of the beginning of the economic reforms, but they weren't, they weren't really um, all that deep yet. So the country was relatively poor and entertainment options were fairly limited. Um, I, uh, there was, I think, maybe one or two channels on TV. Uh, and so one of the uh, big entertainment options was to listen to the radio and especially to listen to um, the storytellers, traditional storytellers on the radio. Uh, and they're called, uh, the, the style of storytelling they perform is called Ping Shu. Uh, it's a fairly old classical uh, Chinese art. And generally the storytellers basically take a classical uh, piece of, of literature or, or set of folklore and basically perform it uh, as a storyteller. They, 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 they would do the voices, they would um, uh, try to uh, give some commentary to, uh, to comment on uh, the society in the stories as well as in relation to the society that the audience was living in, make jokes, all the sort of things that you would expect of an oral storytelling tradition. Um, and so uh, back then, every day at noon, uh, the storyteller would come on the radio and tell a part of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is about the end of the Han Dynasty. And so uh, that was how I was exposed to Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I I would run home every day uh, for lunch uh, and make sure I had to run really fast to be able to get there on time. Uh, and then, uh, then my, as my grandmother and I ate lunch, we would listen to the storyteller on the radio together. And afterwards, before I had to go back to school, I would have a few moments where I could ask my grandmother questions uh, because, you know, as a kid, a six, seven-year-old, I didn't really understand everything I was hearing. So I would ask my grandmother to explain certain things to me, you know, you know, why did he get mad at that? You know, why, why did he betray? Oh, he was such a good Lord. Uh, things like that. And my grandmother would explain things to me. And, and you know, those were my first exposure to, to long-form storytelling. And, my, my, um, and they made a huge impression on me, I think, 
the stories that you're exposed to when you're young end up playing a huge role in the way you relate to stories in general. And so, uh, you know, they 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 still have such a, a a deep impact on me. And whenever I hear uh, the names of the heroes from uh, *Romance of the Three Kingdoms*, uh, I think about the time I got to spend with my grandmother as we listened to the stories. Um, and uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, my my grandmother didn't get to live long enough to see me uh, have these books out. Uh, uh, but I'm sure that uh, if she could see them, she would she would be very happy. Uh, and I I do miss her and and that time with her. That is such a special story. Thank you for sharing that. That's so sweet. And I can definitely see some parallels there with, you know, there's some betrayals and, you know, there's just a few battles in, in the Gracie Kings, right? Just a couple. Uh, now, let's see. We love books with maps. We're all about the maps. Like, if there's a map in a book, I'll read it. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about the process of how do you actually create a map for a book? Uh, this is fun. So, um... Uh, the map for the land, the islands of Dara actually ex existed before the book existed. Before I had written a single word um, in the book, I drew the map. And the very first map I drew was by hand. I just had a piece of paper and I drew a map uh, on there. Uh, using uh, uh, a pencil, um, and so you know, uh, if as, as people who play um, who play video games uh, would know. Um, sorry. This is live, guys. It happens. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, um, as people who play video games like uh, Civilization would know, uh, yes, uh, the geography of, of a land uh, has huge implications on uh, the history uh, that can happen on that land because you have natural choke points, you have terrain, you have geography. All this influences what places uh, are likely to be contested, what places are going to be good harbors, where the population centers are likely to be, and where the big battles will happen. Um, you know, especially in, in, in traditional um, uh, conception of the art of war, uh, understanding terrain and seizing every bit of advantage you can from the terrain is a huge part of planning uh, for both uh, tactical and strategic reasons. So uh, I drew the map, and that was how the plot came to be. I, I drew the map, and then I, I, I sort of figure out how the plot would be. It's sort of like a reverse. I was carrying out, in some ways, the process of guns, germs, and steel. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, by Jared Diamond, where you know he was trying to explain world history through geography, and so I was trying to construct a, a world history for Dara based on the geography of the of uh, islands I drew. Once I had that sort of in mind and worked out, I worked out the plot for how the rebellion would happen, where the choke points would be, how the empire would strike back, and and so on and so forth. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, and uh, and uh, then I had to you know make a better version of the map. Uh, I did the next version using Photoshop, which is not a great tool for this. Uh, let me tell you, uh, it it, uh, it it I I. I took me a lot of effort and it was not the results were not ideal so finally I ended up uh, actually uh, buying software for it there's a, there's a program called campaign cartographer and uh, for people who do a lot of um, uh, RPG 
uh, gaming. I was going to say, that's a Dungeons and Dragons thing. <laughs> I know what that is. <laughs> yes. Uh, they would know what that is. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good tool for drawing maps. Uh, it, there's a pretty deep, steep learning curve. You, you, have to, you have to basically know how computer-aided design tools work to, to, to make use of it. Uh, but uh, I ended up putting in the effort. And so the map that I ended up submitting with my manuscript was done that way. And in fact, for the Japanese edition of The Grace of Kings, that's the map they're using because they like the look. Um, uh, my my uh, American publisher, uh, Saga, uh, did end up uh, commissioning professional um, art for it. And uh, um, I'm sorry, the, the artist's name is, I, it's just escaping my mind at this moment, but it's in the book. Uh, but the artist did an amazing, amazing job. Um, and so um, that's how it ended up happening. That is so interesting. I'm just sitting here like riveted, like <laughs> this whole process is so cool. Oh, now another really awesome part was really one of the first scenes in the book with the kite rider. That was so dramatic. It was a great way to start the story. So where did these fantastical type of elements come from? What was your process for that? Um, so one of the things about the Grace of Kings and uh, the Wall of Storms is, uh, you know, I, I describe them as silk punk epic fantasy. And part of that is because um, they take, they, they're sort of like steampunk in the sense that the, the cool magic in the books is really technology and engineering. Um, and instead of being based on Victorian England, it's based on classical East Asian antiquity. Uh, so... Um, uh, so there are there are hot air balloons in the book, uh, but they're constructed similar to combing lanterns, uh, which are prototypical hot air balloons in East Asia. Um, there are also submarines in this book, which move around like whales, um, and they're sort of uh, constructed based on Korean turtle ships. Um, and uh, uh, there are Chinese legends uh, and historical and, and, and also fictional legends about um, uh, early uh, Han Dynasty generals using kites carrying people into the air uh, for war purposes, for battle purposes. So that's where the battle kites come from. A lot of these ideas have their origin in historical romances or legends or their extensions of the ideas therein. I think one of the things I wanted to do here is to take the sort of fantastical engineering and imaginary machines uh, from these historical romances and take them seriously and see if they can be constructed and sort of extend their principles out. Uh, and you'll see in, in The Wall of Storms, there's even more um, amazing engineering and, and novel machinery uh, and, and cool signs being done. Uh, so, I mean, there, there is magic uh, in The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms, but I, I think uh, in some ways the, the most interesting magic really is engineering and technology. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed those different aspects of the book. And I'm looking forward to The Wall of Storms even more now. I get to see what else you came up with. Uh, so one of the things might not, it's sort of magical, I suppose. There are gods in the story. And uh, Tara and I really liked that they were not omnipotent. Mm -hmm. uh, are they based on any type of Asian mythology or like a mixture of your imagination? They are, they're, um, okay, so here's the thing about the Grace of Kings. Um, the Grace of Kings and the Wall of Storms are 
Chinese inspired, but they they go about this in a very different way from a lot of other China inspired books.、Uh, I I think one of the problems I have with some China inspired fantasy is that they seem to take the superficial elements of Chinese culture without really incorporating or understanding、uh, or being willing to work with the deeper philosophical roots and cultural roots. So you know if you add some Chinese dragons to it and and have the characters wear Chinese style dresses. Um, and eat with chopsticks. That doesn't actually,、um, to me, that doesn't actually、uh, speak to Chinese culture because those superficial elements are not, to me, all that important. It's much more important to get into the philosophical grounding for、uh, for which the dress and the food and、uh, and the mythological creatures are really just a superficial manifestation. So. Um, the Grace of Kings and the Wall of Storms actually don't look very Chinese. If you look at the descriptions, they don't look very ostentatiously Chinese. But the underlying philosophy and and moral stance and the view of the world is actually very very Chinese and broadly speaking、uh, East Asian.、Um, it. So in some ways, it's it's、uh, you know if you think of some of these、uh, exotic orientalized.、Uh, China fantasies as being about really just the superficial stuff without the bones. What I did was to try to take the bones over and and change the superficial appearance to make it look actually less、uh, explicitly Chinese,、um, in order to really get people to think about these books and not apply the standard stereotypical interpretive frameworks for a China-inspired fantasy to it.、Um, and so one of the things I did here was to. Uh, carry over some of the ways in which the Chinese think about their relationship with deities. One of the things about、um, uh, Chinese folk religion is that the gods are 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 not、uh, all inspiring beings. They're they're really just kind of like、um, uh, uh, entities, supernatural beings with. Powers that are greater than than the average human being possesses, but they're not they're not omnipotent. They're not all knowing. They can be tricked. They can be、uh, joked with. They can be you can insult them, play with them, and 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 do all sorts of things. I mean, one of the folk traditions in China is on New Year's Eve you're supposed to、uh, give the kitchen god、uh, sticky rice treats. Now, why do you do this? Well. The the story goes that、uh, the kitchen god,、uh, who is the hearth deity for every family, is supposed to go up to the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly court,、uh, every New Year to report on everything the family has done,、uh, in order to this is sort of like the Santa Claus version, right? So like go up there to say who's being nice, who's being naughty, and and supposedly the the emperor of of heaven will will make a decision about what sort of luck you'll have. So the idea here is by feeding the kitchen god sticky sweet rice treats,、um, the the、um, uh, the kitchen god's teeth will be stuck together. So by the time he gets up there, he won't be able to say anything. So you know, this is sort of like you know, now now you've 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 put a blindfold blindfold over. Um, the 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 elf on the shelf, and now so there's no more reporting to Santa of what you've done.、Uh, but that kind of like you know very irreverent attitude towards the the divine towards deities is very typical of of, of Chinese folk religions. And then so I try to carry some of that through in the way the gods are portrayed.、Uh, I don't know if you recall, but the gods sort of trick each other, and there's in fact scenes in which you know uh, you know uh, one of the mortals. 
deliberately misunderstands their message and, and interprets to mean something else, and there was nothing the gods could do about it. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that aspect of it is kind of fun to, to carry that across. Yeah, I agree. It, it was. It was very fun to see what the gods were going to do next or when they were like, wait, did you do that? No, I didn't. Do, did you do that? <laughs> it, was, it was really a lot of fun. Now, kind of sticking with the philosophical side of things, uh, one of the lines that I underlined in the book uh, says, the grace of kings is not the same as the morals governing individuals. So what does the term the grace of kings mean to you? I mean, a flippant answer would be, that's kind of what the 185,000 words I wrote down is about. <laughs> All the words are there to explain that concept. But no, 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 no. Seriously. Um, so, Grace of Kings is uh, um, a quote from Shakespeare's Henry V, um, who Henry V himself is, is described as this Grace of Kings. Um, and so, uh, w what I wanted to do here is to sort of play off of the multiple meanings of the word grace and grace of kings because there is this recurring uh, uh, concept uh, in Western philosophy as well as in Chinese philosophy of the distinctions between what ethical duties and moral duties mean when you're responsible for as many people as are in a nation versus what you have to do when you're just responsible for a family or for yourself. Um, you know, uh, I, I think a father saying, I'm going to send my son out to kill people and to, to die is not acting morally. But a president who says, I'm going to send young men out there to die and to kill young women and young men out there to die and to kill, we would say that's part of policy. Uh, and and why why do we distinguish in that way? You know why why do, how do we judge? How do we judge whether the president's decision to send people to die and to kill is right, versus how do we judge you know individual saying saying and doing certain things like that? That's what I'm interested in. You know to what extent and at what point do what we understand as moral processes as as ethical reasons stop being those 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 things and and why is it that a, a king or a president uh is faced with different kind of constraints what are the qualities of of, of you know um their decision making how how do they make decisions differently and then why are they judged differently uh than than individuals who don't have that kind of position or responsibility so, um, all right, we're down to our last few questions because um, I know you got to run. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm going to reorder them because of what you just said. That was such a yeah. important, I think, a really important point. And um, so this week has been sort of terrible. We'll just put it that way. Um, interesting. In, sure, interesting is another one. Um, you said in this morning's panel uh, that you tr are trying to use your epic fantasy to explore the issues of society today. Um, with what's happened this week, and for those of you listening in the future, what happened this week is the 2016 presidential election. Um, has that impacted how you're going to view the finale of your story in any way? Um, so I plan out um, 
a story arc for all three books before I embarked on drafting them. So I know broadly speaking where things are going to be. I, I have these sort of islands in the distance. I know they're there, and I just need to figure out how to get there. So um, I, I'm not going to. I don't think uh, uh, it makes sense for me to change that because I do have an overall story that I want to tell now.、Um, How the story will be read and interpreted, of course, is different. And、uh, as I said before, readers always bring their own interpretive frameworks to every work they encounter.、Uh, it's I'm sure you know today. If we go read、uh, something like Carolina's、uh, today, we would have a different interpretation of it than we did say. Um, you know, a couple years ago,、um, depending on the moment in in society when the reader approaches a work, they they have a different view of it,、um, and that's that's perfectly fine. What what I am going to do is、um, to keep on writing my work. My work has always, I mean, the the three books in the trilogy have always been. Um, uh, a series that's engaged with political justice, with what it means to be just.、Uh, even in the Grace of Kings, if you recall, there's this huge、um, recurring theme between two of the two main characters, Matazindu and Kunigaru.、Uh, there's there's this moment where Kuni advocates mercy for、um, civilians of, of of a surrender city, and Mata says. What you don't understand, brother, is that mercy for your enemies is the same as cruelty to our own soldiers. So, if you're merciful to them, you are in fact being cruel and harmful to us. That is why I cannot be merciful. That kind of idea of 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 us versus them, of of what it means to be part of a group,、uh, I think drives、uh, some of the politics that we're discussing.、Uh, and and the question is, you know. What do we do with that?、Uh, does that make sense to us? If it does make sense, why? If it doesn't make sense, why? And and if we don't think it makes sense and we would like it to not make sense, what do we have to do to get it to the point where it doesn't make sense? Because I think、um, for many people,、uh, that logic of 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 zero sum、uh, mercy in the world.、Um, Is still pretty much true, and I think that drives a lot of the 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 problems that we have.、Um, my books are concerned about those questions, but they don't provide easy answers、uh, because I think these are very difficult questions, and we struggle with them,、uh, and we may struggle with them eternally because it's part of human nature. <sighs> so true.、Um, so. You've mentioned a couple times that the second book in the Dandelion Dynasty, The Wall of Storms, is out. We're so sorry we didn't read it yet. We're going to though. We promise.、Um, to be fair, it's like a thousand pages. <laughs> um, <laughs>、um, what can readers expect from this next installment? So, The Wall of Storms uh, is um, in relation to、uh, the Grace of Kings.、Uh, it's sort of like the Aeneid to the Iliad.、Mm -hmm. Um, so the Grace of Kings is about a set of ancient legends,、uh, larger than life characters. It's, it's explicitly written in that style, where the characters are not、uh, naturalistic but expressionistic.、Um, the Wall of Storms is quite different in some ways because、uh, the Wall of Storms now is a, a book about the next generation, and it's a book about 
what happens after you win the war.、Um, you now have to maintain the peace, and so it's about reading and interpreting and rereading and reinterpreting what has come before. So、um, even with the very first scene in the Wall of Storms, what you have is a storyteller telling an episode from the Grace of Kings. But as soon as you read the storyteller's version, you'll see that it's not quite the same as the version that you had read initially. And then you have the audience members trying to interpret this presentation. There are repeated scenes of presentations being given and interpreted, messages being performed and being perceived,、uh, and. Uh, and philo- philosophy debates. Uh, so uh, one of the things that happened here is、um, uh, one of my favorite things in in the book、uh, is that、uh, one of the most exciting battle scenes actually is not a battle scene at all. It's a scene of scholars taking an examination,、uh, but it's written using the rhythm and style of a battle scene. So I I, I was very proud of it having having done it and showed it to my wife Lisa, and Lisa was like. This is the most exciting exam thing <laughs> I have ever read. So I was I was all very excited because、uh, you know my thought was like if I can get this you know intellectual examination seeing exciting then、um, you know then the rest of it will be even better. And I think I think I think I think the Wall of Storms is better because of that. The there are still massive battle scenes and lots of you know silk punk. Inventions and machines and, and and magical creatures and all of that, but I think one of the things that's that it has over the Grace of Kings is that now there are a lot of nuance to these fights, um, uh, mainly because there are a lot more scholars uh, and 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 courtiers and and generals and、uh, many of them. Uh, and, and are are challengers to the status quo.、Uh, they're women in this new order where they have to do things that previously were denied、uh, to them.、Uh, and so the women scholars and the women generals and the ministers、um, and the scientists、uh, all have something to say about how to transform the 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 empire of Dara to something different. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about it. The Wall of Storms is a critique and 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 a rereading of the Grace of Kings in many ways,、uh, because you explicitly have episodes from the first book being presented in the second book, and now it's being read and interpreted to mean something new to the new generation.、Uh, just as I was saying to you earlier, how readers come to the same text with different interpretations. Now. If you if you if you take the legend of、uh, Princess Kikomi, and and show it to an、uh, an old scholar who believes in the old ways, he will have a certain interpretation for what happens. But if you show the story to a young、uh, a, a, a young woman scholar who is very interested in upsetting the status quo, she will have a different reading of it and a different interpretation of it. And in the Wall of Storms, you sort of see that happening. These these stories from the first book that are meant to uphold a certain idea of stability, of femininity, of masculinity, of what it means to be a person of Dara, being reinterpreted and in some cases burned to the ground. And and then I think、uh, I think that's what's exciting. In the third book, hopefully, we'll construct something new.、Um, the revolution continues and goes on. <laughs> Oh man, I wish we could have forever to talk about this. This has been a fascinating conversation.、Um, last question: Has it have anything to do with the Grace of Kings?、Um, 
we are called the Eclectic Readers Book Club. Um, so we ask everyone we talk to to give us an eclectic pick of yours, that a book that you love that might be off the wall, that doesn't get enough love, or yeah, just something you, you cherish. Um, if you could pick one book for our readers to read, our listeners to read, what would it be? Um, I would recommend B. Wilson's uh, Consider the Fork. Uh, which is a history of culinary implements and ways of cooking. Uh, it sounds like the sort of thing that a lot of people are not interested in. You, you might think this is limited to people who are really into food or cooking. Uh, it, in fact, is not. I am not a great cook, uh, uh, but I found the book utterly fascinating, mainly because um, you, you learn something about uh, how um, the, the most magnificent social waves of change are represented by the smallest intimate details in your kitchen. Uh, and, and the way, um, uh, how, how the way a culture cooks and eats um, is so deeply tied into the myth that they tell themselves about who they are. You know, the way the English are tied to the English roast and the way the Chinese are tied to the Chinese style of cooking and chopsticks. There's, there's, there's a lot to this, to the way um, these, the material culture of, of cooking and of, of, of making food and consuming food uh, is tied into the way a people sets themselves apart from everybody else around them. Uh, and in fact, you know, this is, is not just about cultures. It's really down to the level of families. I'm sure every one of us has family-specific ways of, of cooking and of eating that make them distinct. And we pass these traditions down to our children in some ways because they define who we are. And I think it's just fascinating to read a history in which um, B. Wilson really goes into the details and, and teaches you how to look for these things. Uh, anyway, I, I, I think whether you're a big fan of fiction, of, of nonfiction or, or history, uh, Consider the Fork is, is a very, very good book to read. Well, there you go, Eclectic Reader. Something to add to your TBR. Uh, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us today. It was just fantastic to have you with us and on the show. Um, so guys, let's shelve this till next time. <laughs>